Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard and the 2015 Carol Award for Debut Novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. About a week or two ago, Twitter was in the news. More specifically, Twitter's little check mark that they put next to people. Now, if you're not a Twitter connoisseur, you may not realize the significance of the little blue check, which is placed by Twitter next to some people's names. Uh, it reminds me a bit of when I was in grade school. There was a system in place wherein when you did something wrong, the first thing you had to do was write your name on the board, after which you got a check next to your name. In that case, it was a bad thing. There was this one kid in class who uh, one time started getting checks, and there was this whole system. Two checks meant, oh, I don't know, you're on thin ice. Three checks meant you're going to the principal's office. Four checks meant parents were called. And there was this kid who was like, can I have another check? And the teacher was like, sure. And he was like, can I have another check? Sure. Can I have another check? And he did this until the entirety of the width of the, the blackboard was covered in checks. Uh, at which point, I, he didn't really know what to do next and just went ahead and preemptively headed down to the principal's office. Also, that kid was me. Uh, back then, it was very easy to get checks next to your name. But today, apparently not so much. People really want the check, which indicates that Twitter has verified the account. So generally, it's famous people who have these checks because of the tendency for people to start fake accounts in the name of real celebrities. However... Even borderline kind of famous people that I know have checks next to their names, and I had never really thought much about it. I'd always kind of looked at it and thought, huh, they must be a big deal. But it had never occurred to me that I wanted to get a check next to my name until maybe a month and a half ago. Some friends of mine run another podcast called The Happy Rant Podcast. Actually, it was started up by Stephen L. Trogi, and then he like saw something shiny and got distracted onto other projects and things, uh, but it's still going strong. Very funny podcast, and, and uh, they discuss different issues and things, often sarcastically, snarkily. And not long ago, they were discussing the phenomenon of the Twitter checkmark and how one of them had the check on his Twitter account, one of them didn't, and then one of them wasn't on Twitter at all. And they were joking how, you know, you have no value as a human being unless you have the checkmark. And in that moment, I remember thinking, I wonder how you can go about getting it. Because I had seen people who had not that many followers who had the checkmark, and I had seen people who had tens of thousands who didn't. And so I did a little Google. And I found that Twitter had opened up a process by which you could present yourself as a candidate for the blue check mark. And I had this crazy notion that since I'm doing this podcast, which is about a lot of this stuff, platform promotion, self-marketing, you know, stuff that's all wrapped up in being an author, that it would be funny and fun if I tried to get the blue check. And so I opened up the application and I started filling in all this information about myself. And it got down to the bottom where I think this is the core of the process. I had to put in five different URLs, different web addresses that would indicate how significant I am in kind of the grander scheme of the bigger conversation like how influential I am, which usually people point to Twitter to say that they're influential. Now Twitter's over here saying, no, point me somewhere else to show me. I think I wound up putting in the link on HarperCollins uh, Publishing, where they had an author page for me with my books listed, a couple of reviews from big establishment print media stuff like uh, Library Journal, and then this article in what's called the Globe and Mail. Maybe you've heard of it. I never had, but a friend of mine who's Canadian told me that the Globe and Mail is essentially like USA Today, but for Canada. So I guess 
Canada Today. Anyway, there was an article uh, about fear, and it had to do with Halloween and why people like to be scared and, and scaring your kids and stuff like this. And uh, I was interviewed in it as an expert in uh, things suspense-related as well as things religious. And so I, I popped that in there, and I thought for sure I had it in the bag. But here's the funny thing. I started it out kind of as a, a ha-ha, like a gag, and by the time I was done filling this thing out, maybe partially because of just the sheer volume of time I'd put into it, but more likely predominantly because of the old Adam living in me who wants to be acknowledged and respected, I really wanted that blue check. Then like a week or two went by, no answer from Twitter, and I thought, well, they'd probably only tell you if they decided not to give you the blue check, which I thought was kind of lame, like they should tell you either way, just, you know, set people's mind at ease. Not that my mind wasn't at ease, but, you know, just let you know. Then I got an email from Twitter, and I thought it would have been so much nicer if they just never told me that I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't important enough to garner the blue check. And in that moment of seeing that email and having that just drop in my spirit, like, oh, come on, it occurred to me that I was acting so very much like Chaz Marriott. I bet about half of you are wondering, who is Chaz Marriott? And that's because the other half of you listen to the Gut Check podcast and the Happy Rant podcast and are into Gut Check uh, books and satires. Chaz Marriott is a fictional platform and book marketing guru, who is actually me and Ted Kluck. After roasting the emergent church movement, uh, rest in peace, and the young restless reformed movement, uh, sort of rest in peace, I guess. It's kind of morphed into the older curmudgeonly and still super reformed movement. We decided that because we hated every time we spoke at these uh, writing conferences, we hated how much time and how much energy and how much of the content was devoted to not the craft, not the importance of the book, not issues of genre, but rather platform, 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 Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blogs. Yes, blogs, even in a post-2010 world. It, it was mind-boggling, and we hated how it had gone from being about the writing to being about self-promotion in kind of the most annoying possible way. And I hated how I had this Twitter account, and I realized at one point that for every hundred followers I had, like 40 of them were actually just people who were trying to get me to follow them so that they could tell me to buy their books, but everyone they were following was also trying to get them to follow their books. It was almost like a Ponzi scheme of social media. And so we set about to, to make fun of this phenomenon by writing a book called Mega. Subtitle, Get Noticed All the Time for Everything. Uh, and at first it was by Ted and I, and then Ted was doing a lot more of the writing, and I was just kind of there to, to sort of punch it up here and there and help him brainstorm. And eventually we decided to turn it into a book by a fictional individual named Chaz Marriott, no relation to anyone else who might have the same last name as a major hotel chain. And the idea was it would follow his sort of arc uh, that, that he had already lived through, from nobody to up-and-coming marketing guru to platform and social media expert, and then kind of down into where all of that self-obsession, self-promotion, etc., etc., would ultimately lead. It's kind of bleak, but in an absolutely hilarious way. And today, I would like to read just a little bit to you from this book, Mega, How to Get Noticed All the Time, for Everything by Chaz Marriott. Chapter 1. I have more Twitter followers than you, which means, implicitly, more people care about me than care about you, which obviously means my book is better than yours. That's, that's all that is the, the chapter title. I'll never forget the day my agent told me to get a Facebook page. He told me that it's yet another way to get my important message out there and yet another way to connect with my public. I was skeptical. I told him, Facebook is for teenage girls. To which he replied, yeah, but they're potential business book buyers. That's when it clicked for me. That's also when I started getting pokes from lots of girls named Brittany who spell it with the I at the end and attend Lansing Community College on a part-time basis. A subheading about agents. Having an agent is essential. I used to think that having an agent was only for professional athletes, actors, and writers, but now I want to impress upon you the value of everyone having an agent. 
For example, my accountant has an agent. My father, who is a shoe salesman, has an agent. My agent actually has his own agent. Having an agent gives you two very important things. One, the ability to say, I have an agent. Two, the ability to say, you'll have to talk to my agent. They also perform services like contract negotiation and sometimes go to parent-teacher conferences I don't feel like attending. My agent also, sometimes, handles my personal correspondence. So if instead of a Christmas card you receive a form letter on elegant 25% cotton agency letterhead, you'll know it's from me, and you'll know that I empowered my agent to sign all the Christmas letters as me. The look of an agent. It's important that your agent look the part. I require my guy to wear double-breasted suits, borsalino hats, and cufflinks at all times. I require him to slick back... <laughs> I require him to slick back his hair in the fashion of Pat Riley, who is better known as the coach of the Showtime-era Los Angeles Lakers, a team I've followed from my courtside seats. Footnote. I sat courtside once in 1993 when they were playing the Milwaukee Bucks. I was a guest of Michael Regency back when we were on speaking terms. I also require him to call me on my mobile phone three times per day just so that I can raise my index finger and say, it's my agent, I need to take this. I will then start shouting large numbers into the phone in order to impress whoever I'm with. This has never failed to impress a room full of people. Throughput. Ever heard of the term throughput? I didn't think so. That's because I just coined it. I made it up on the golf course as sort of a pastiche of playthrough and putt. I'm copywriting it and making it a key plank in my business platform. What is throughput, you might ask? It doesn't matter. What does matter is that as a business leader, it's important to always be making up new nebulous terms that can mean a variety of things to a variety of people. Holacracy. This is another one of those terms that someone made up. In this case, it was Google, which is a leading internet search engine and also a very successful company. Personally, I have an exclusive rights merchandising deal with the search engine Alta Vista, which means that every time I'm searching the web, I'm doing it through their engine. Needless to say, I get a lot of hits on things that were produced pre-1999. This Ricky Martin guy is a riot, and I'm having a lot of fun trying to decide on my favorite Spice Girl. A a holacracy is the idea that everyone's idea matters in a company, and that no one man is more valuable than another. This sounds like a lot of touchy-feely expletive omitted to me. The point. Throughput and holacracy are only relevant if they're allowing you to do what matters most, acquiring a platform. And by a platform, I mean followers. And by followers, I mean people who visit your social media page and click like or follow. These people matter because they contribute to a number that represents your value. Here's what I mean, tangibly. If I have 77,000 Twitter followers and you have only 4,000, it means I'm better than you. Better how, you might ask? Better by 73,000. The ability to put a numeric value on human lives is an absolute, revolutionary, paradigm-shifting, leader-shifting proposition. Again, it means that I'm better numerically, quantifiably. It means that my book is better than yours, and it means that regardless of the fact that you used to beat me up in high school and stuff me into my locker, I am better than you. <clears throat> Skipping ahead. Chapter 4. My author photo was taken in such a way as to make me look equal parts credible, aggressive, sexy, compassionate, thoughtful, mavericky, and well-dressed. Also, check out my hair. When you're an author who is also a social media and marketing expert, your author photo is everything. It goes on the back flap of your book. It goes on your business card. It goes on the strange filmy wrap thing that you encase your <laughs> Acura Integra in. It goes on the flyers you occasionally leave at Denny's instead of a tip. <laughs> And it goes on the billboard off of South MLK Boulevard, which advertises your upcoming speaking engagement in Ballroom C of the Ramada Inn by the airport. That said, I can't overstate how important this is. I actually had a batch of these taken six years before I had my first book deal. In fact, when I was in grade school, I implored the school district photographer to let me drape my sport jacket over my shoulder jauntily. He also let me experiment with some other business casual poses before we settled on a shot that featured me sitting behind the principal's mahogany desk. When you're a future business tycoon, these are the kinds of things you do. When you finally sign that book deal with Moody, Baker, Thomas Nelson, Faith Words, or Bethany House, they'll ask you to send in several high-res author photos. They'll discuss using these on bookmarks, coasters, flyers, life-size posters, vinyl blow-up dolls, and all other kind of printed material that have absolutely no correlation to how well your book sells and which you'll have to move out of your basement when you decide to downsize several years later. 
Someone in your publisher's marketing department will convince you that these are all a good idea. He or she will usually have moved to another company, gotten married, or decided to go to graduate school before your book even comes out. Not that I'm bitter. My current author photo is an object lesson in sexy, credible maverickness. If my author photo... If my author photo were an animal, it would be a sleek panther stalking its prey through a wooded mountainside. Except in this analogy, I am the panther and the wooded mountainside is just the marketplace in general. If I were you, I would initially shoot, metaphorically speaking, for being a more accessible animal, like a golden retriever or a lemur. You have to be a realist. My photo will take you to previously unheard of heights of marketing and business credibility. Just seeing my picture will make you want to buy whatever product it is I'm championing. My photo will blow your mind. Here are some suggested locations for your author shot. A mountaintop. Subtext. I am the king of this mountain, as it were. Your office. Provided your office has lots of mahogany and many pictures of you standing next to celebrities. Also, lots of framed degrees and awards. If your office lacks these things, proceed to another suggested location. Surrounded by poor people. Subtext, I have a big heart. The Nike campus in Beaverton, Oregon. Before they call security. On the bow of an ocean liner. Subtext, this is my ocean liner. Divergent philosophies on smiling. Your smile shouldn't be too wide, open-hearted, or authentic, lest you look somehow vapid and trivial. Your smile should be slightly wry. It should be the kind of smile that says, I just stole 25 of Michael Regency's Twitter followers, and it's not even lunchtime. Or, after Bill Hybels fired me as his marketing advisor, I may or may not have broken the jaw of the security guy who got a little rough with me on the way out of the Willow Creek Fayetteville campus. It should be the kind of smile that says, I was only two interviews away from being named president of Cedarville College in 1998. Frowning. You shouldn't frown either, because frowning suggests that you may be unhappy, or worse, not in control of every situation all of the time. Frowning suggests that you may not be entirely convinced of your own awesomeness. This cannot be. Also avoid. Family. Having family members in your photos suggests weakness and also suggests that your calls will go to voicemail on your daughter's special day. Your clients need to know that you're there for them 24 hours a day, even if your wife is having a non-invasive outpatient surgery, which according to WebMD shouldn't even be a big deal. Creativity. Again, creativity and originality are for the weak-minded. What your clients need to know is that you're rock solid, steady, and secure. They need to know that you're an unshakable rock, like the government and the stock market. The colors purple and teal. The temptation to remove your glasses and sort of nibble on the end of them thoughtfully. I ruined a good pair of glasses in a photo shoot by doing this. The temptation to use the selfie that you took at Shaquille O'Neal's retirement party as your author photo. I learned this the hard way. Women. Unless you're a woman. Chapter 5. More people means more successful. How implementing this core value in your church, family, and parachurch ministry can make all the difference. Who's in your tribe? Your tribe is comprised of the people who follow you, meaning, more specifically, the people who are your friends or followers on social media. It's important to call this group of people your tribe because this is a business term that is trending right now. Aside, I don't think it's trending anymore. We wrote this like three years ago. Make no mistake about it, the word tribes is not just some contrived marketing gimmick by some author, contrived specifically for the purpose of moving product, or even for the purpose of just creating a different word for audience or customers, because it's somehow too passe and modern era to refer to the people who buy your stuff as customers. No way. The concept of tribes has been around since Europeans discovered Native Americans. Actually, maybe before, according to some sources. Footnote. Example. Wik <laughs> Wikipedia. Tribal secret. How do you get a tribe? How do you get a tribe? The secret is that it doesn't matter. Only that there is a lot of people in your tribe. They can be there for a variety of reasons, ranging from actual interest in you or your product to the free mega t-shirts you gave out at the regional conference on getting noticed and excellence in creative nonfiction. Either way, they're now in your tribe. The more people you have, the more successful you are. You can have several tribes containing different people. In fact, you should. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that sometimes you get a tribe when your Cessna citation runs out of fuel over a certain remote section of Peru. Having been rerouted by terminal control when you were trying to fly yourself to the Bears Colts Super Bowl in Miami a few years ago. Sometimes you are taken in by... 
Sometimes you are taken in by indigenous peoples and subjected to certain... <laughs> certain awkward medical, <laughs> medical experiments until you are eventually assimilated and made an honorary member just before your agent sends a rescue helicopter. This can happen. Sometimes... You end up buying their land for pennies on the dollar and creating a coffee plantation, which you then turn around and sell at a tidy sum to a large and recognizable American gas station and donut chain. This is another, albeit more literal, way to acquire a tribe. This is also the reason why I didn't tweet between the months of January and April in 2011. Size matters. All of the best things in the world are big. For example, New York City has more people in it than almost any other city which means that it's better. Also, my 2003 Cadillac DeVille has more cylinders in its North Star engine than, say, a Toyota Prius. This makes it a better car. Also, my considerable height, I'm 6'4", and my regal mountain of hair makes me, essentially, better than the many men who are shorter than I am. You get the idea. The idea, in case you didn't get it. The idea here is that numbers are the only metric that matters. Want to know how you're doing in pastoral ministry? Count the number of people in your church or youth group. Or better yet, just consider your budget, provided the number is large enough to provide fulfillment and the feeling that you're doing a good job. Want to know how you're doing as a parent? Simply count the number of children, adopted or biological, living in your home. Want to know how you're doing as a husband? Your only metric should be the number of years that you've been married. And if you've been married a long time, you can be smug and superior about this, lording it over others who haven't been married as long. Numbers are everything. Numbers are the new letters. Numbers are the new character. Because, as I alluded to in the subheading just four lines above this one, numbers are everything. Okay, I have to skip ahead, even though I want to read everything. Chapter 7 is called, When I wake up in the morning, I just can't shake the feeling of emptiness I have when I think about the fact that, in spite of all my social media, all my money, all of my mid-level luxury sedans I've owned, all of my speaking engagements, all of the nonprofit boards I'm the chair of, all of the conferences I've keynoted, and all of the times I've tried to golf while smoking a Cohiba, I'm just a scared little boy trying to prove something to my father. Uh, Chapter 8, is oh, there's a lot of his backstory worked into this. This is so funny. I, I know that sounds uh, arrogant, but most of this is Ted Kluck, so, so I'm, just, I'm laughing at his genius. Chapter 8 is called An Archival List of Famous People I've Been Photographed Next To in the Unlikely Event That I'm No Longer Able to Pay Rent on My Office Space and Something Happens to the Pictures. Chapter 9 is called Family First, and by first, I mean I speak with each of my children once a year, and only on their birthdays. And in that, in that chapter, you get a little hint that perhaps Chaz is on the outs of his family because they were getting in the way of, of his uh, self-promotion and platform building. Oh, here we go. Chapter 10. Reasons I think God may be calling you to buy my timeshare in the suburbs of Orlando. There's this misnomer circulating that timeshare condominiums are the thing of the 1980s. There are people who believe that a timeshare is nothing more than a sad little two-bedroom apartment in a no longer relevant Orlando suburb adjacent to a Piggly Wiggly supermarket and an oil change place. With those detractors, I couldn't disagree more wholeheartedly. My timeshare is two weeks of high-end luxury paradise, which includes a small workout facility on-site, laundry, and a lap pool. There's also a golf course a mere 14 blocks away. A short 90-minute drive and you're dipping your toes into the Gulf of Mexico. At the end of a long day of golfing, sunbathing, or using the local coffee shop for their internet, it's, <laughs> it's back home to my colorful floral print sofa where I pick up the remote and enjoy everything that Basic Cable has to offer. You may ask yourself, why wouldn't I just get a hotel room in Orlando near Disney or Universal Studios? Because when you're a sought-after expert in social media and marketing, it's important to have several residences. And owning a timeshare in Orlando for two weeks in July counts as having another residence. When you stay in a hotel, you wind up buying nice meals out in many of the upscale eateries that Orlando has to offer. You also have to deal with the awkwardness of having a maid come into your room to clean it and refresh your supplies each day. Who wants to deal with that? Buying my timeshare is just a sound business decision. It also provides you a connection to lots of famous people whom I've advised over the years. Here's a short list of people who have been in my timeshare. Frank Viola, revolutionary author. Frank Viola, Minnesota Twins relief pitcher. Frank Turk, though that was a surprise to me. The conservative Baldwin brother, whose name escapes me. Jack Van Impey. Back when we used to work out together, he filmed his eighth member of the European Union theory in my guest room. Stephen Furtick, 
He was going to spontaneously mass-baptize a bunch of people in the condo association's pool, but it wasn't large enough. Britt Nicole, who sometimes keeps her bike in the condo. Creed, which is the reason the third couch cushion is severely burned. Gary Busey, though he was unconscious. Things you can say when you own a timeshare. I'm going to my place in Florida. I own multiple homes. If you don't wake up in the next 48 hours, I'm calling the cops to Busey. All right, this is getting long. Uh, chapter 11, just because I live in a studio apartment above a karate dojo doesn't mean I'm not a sought-after expert in the world of marketing and social media. <laughs> chapter 12, how to leverage the fact that I'm 95% sure my new roommate is former actor and martial arts expert Steven Seagal. Okay, I have to read the last chapter before the many appendices. Chapter 14, I feel so, expletive omitted, alone. Transcript of inaugural video podcast. Working title, Business and All That Chaz. Hello, is this thing on? Indiscernible noises, including those of a thumb thumping the end of a microphone, and also papers being shuffled. I just got a new USB microphone for my laptop and... garbled. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Business and All That Chaz, which is a clever play on the well-known phrase All That Jazz, which is also the title of a Broadway musical. Think of this podcast, cough, cough, as the Broadway musical of business podcasts, meaning that it will have the same kind of entertainment value, minus the costumes, actors, stage lights, and music. Rather, it will be me, here in my apartment, speaking into a webcam and a USB microphone, talking about business and business issues. I'll be joined sometimes by a man whom I'm quite certain is former Hollywood actor Steven Seagal. Steven, a pause as Seagal ostensibly walks through the room. He'll be appearing periodically because we share the same living space, which I like to think of as an incubator for creative thought and business excellence. It's also where we keep our karate equipment and eat many of our meals. Beeping of a microwave. Another expletive, as Seagal is burned by a hot bowl of top ramen. I can't overstate the importance of podcasting. Podcasting, to the uninitiated, may seem like simply giving away a product for free. It may seem like a semi-pointless expenditure of time and, in some cases, money. It may mean that you'll be at the mercy of your neighbor's unsecured wireless connection, which has a way of going out at critical moments of your... 18 seconds of blank screen. Sorry, folks. I'm Chaz Marriott, and this is All That Chaz. Steven, off-camera, can you please not walk in front of that window because it compromises the internet connection? Thanks. Sound of a garbled voice and a door closing. You may think Mr. Seagal's voice is garbled because of this USB microphone, but it actually sounds that way in real life. Anyway, podcasting is a great way to reach your constituents with a message that is a lot of work for you, but which they don't have to pay anything for. That's the beauty of podcasting for them. The idea here is that if they get enough of your product for free in the form of 20 to 30 minute, but not longer, podcasts and videos, they will eventually, magically, someday decide to start paying you for that product. If other companies applied this same logic, and I hope they do, then Nike would be giving away free basketball shoes and I wouldn't have to play my pickup game at the Y in this pair of Doc shoes from the 1990s. Pauses to show Doc shoes. <laughs> Pause for what seems like several minutes, but is really only... But it's really only like 90 seconds. <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm alone, completely alone, in a studio apartment, speaking into a tiny round dot on the top of my antiquated Toshiba laptop. I can't believe that anyone considers this cutting edge, given the low quality of this image, and also given the way my chin looks from this angle. Pauses to adjust angle. Sigh. I mean, what I'm really trying to get at here, conceptually, is the idea of, and the irony in, the fact that although I've spent my life trying to build a quote-unquote platform, what I'm doing at this moment is being completely and utterly alone and speaking into a USB microphone in such a way as to suggest that I have followers, makes air quotes, and an audience, ibid, re, the air quotes, when in reality, the likelihood of somebody downloading all that chaz and actually listening to it and actually caring about it is about the same probability-wise as Mr. Seagal inviting me to hang out with him at Eric Roberts' condo to celebrate Memorial Day. Also, it's Memorial Day, and I don't have anything to do. Pause for what sounds like sniffling. 
The thing of it is, is that sometimes I have trouble even getting out of bed in the morning and, like, convincing myself that any of this is worthwhile. I mean, if you think I actually care whether you quote-unquote grow your quote-unquote platform, then I've got a golf course to sell you on the outskirts of Lansing, right near the Lansing-East Lansing border, adjacent to an electronic cigarette stand and a Sears. Actually, I do have that, and I would really like to sell it. Sigh. What is real is that I don't know who I am anymore. I mean, I know that I'm Chaz Marriott, but did you know that's not even my real name? It isn't. But I'm not going to tell you my real name, because that's a level of self-disclosure and, you know, intimacy that I'm not so comfortable with yet. What I mean is that I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why any of us are here. I mean, there are just so many... (laughs) I mean, there are just so many people. Do you ever wonder what they're all doing? Do you ever wonder, like why they're here, per se? Do you ever wonder what gives them fulfillment? I bet it's not updating their Twitter feeds and Facebook statuses several times a day in such a way as to drive website traffic and throughput. Sounds of cereal being eaten off-camera. I'm eating cereal on my podcast. This is media. This is entertainment. At this moment, you're listening to me eating cereal. I'm so lonely. I miss my family so much. I've spent my entire life trying to be famous enough and impressive enough to them so as to make them proud of me, but the irony of it all is that they just want me around, or at least that's what they said via a handwritten letter I received at the dojo downstairs, which is where I receive my mail. I'm so tired. I mean, not physically tired, but more like a psychic sort of spiritual sort of fatigue, kind of. It's a pervasive kind of dark, settling fatigue that makes activities like taking out the garbage and binge-watching Cheers feel tiresome. I don't even want to check my social media anymore. I have 16 blogs. 16. Long pause. I just want to go home. I want to never get online again. I want to never ascend a stage again, only to hear the sort of polite post-lunch applause that says, figuratively, I'm just here for the grilled chicken, and also because my company paid to send me here, and this is better than sitting in the office, slowly having the life sucked out of me. I want to never wear a conference golf shirt again. I never want to hear the words grip and grin. I never again want to tell anyone that their book idea has potential, and they should consider getting it published, and they should hire me to do their publicity. I want to never again then hand that person a business card and then promise to catch up with them later, which I will do via telephone call exactly 36 hours later so that they feel quote-unquote valued and remembered but not quote-unquote pressured. Sounds of mouse clicking, Marriott's eyes moving frantically around the screen. Do you hear that sound? It's the sound of me shutting down my Twitter account. It's also the sound of me deleting blogs. It's the sound of the online entity known as Chaz Marriott disappearing. Sigh. (laughs) The sound of tears being wiped away. Compose yourself, Marriott. To self. Come on now. The sound of a letter being opened, unfolded, and, we can assume, read. The sounds of a bag being packed, meaning the rustling of nylon along with the rustling of cotton and pants material. The sound of a door opening. Seagal, from off-camera. Hey, a few of us are... Garbled. Together over at Eric Roberts' pool. Want to join us? The sound of a computer being powered down and clicked shut. Actually, that ends on kind of a hopeful note. I had forgotten that we did that. Um, There's much, much more to Chaz Marriott. I highly recommend that you uh, buy this book. Uh, Do my buddy Ted Cluck a solid, but more than that, yourself. Do yourself a big favor and get a hold of Mega, How to Get Noticed All the Time for everything. Uh, And I know I read a ton of that, mostly because I hadn't thought about it in a long time and I was enjoying it, but also because writing that was cathartic for us in that we were so disgusted with that whole culture, that whole sub-subculture that values those things so much higher than things that should matter. And yet at the same time, here I am trying to get that little blue check mark. Here I am inordinately bummed that I didn't, and here I am excited when I hit certain milestones on Twitter and stuff. It's all very tempting, and it's honestly easier to kind of laugh at and scoff at those things when you've got a book deal and when you can hold up your index finger and say, hold on, it's my agent, uh, than when you're trying to kind of make these things work on your own. It's easy to put your trust in the number of your followers And it was easy for King David to put his trust in horses and armies and chariots. It's something I guess we'll all be contending against all the time. 
In the meantime, though, let's get back to my podcast, which hopefully is not nearly as sad and depressing as Chaz Marriott's, and check in with Trenton Marsh in the little town of Clinch Rock. A Novel, Chapter 19. Quote, Early to bed and early to rise might make a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, but it does not glorify God. Jesus stayed up all night, healing the sick. Paul preached until one of his listeners fell asleep and right out the window. Embracing insane faith means burning the midnight oil and getting up early no matter what. Spring out of bed with a purpose, gather your visions and dreams, and attack the day like you were David and they were Goliath. From Insane Faith, A Guide to Extreme Christianity for the Truly Faithful, by Stephen Branding, page 66. Trenton's eyes flew open. He'd been in and out of shallow sleep, mostly out, since lying down in his father's study. Each time he'd awakened, his heart had been racing and his skin cold and clammy, although he had no idea why. This time, though, it was no mystery. He heard voices outside the door, multiple people, Light leaked in through the translucent blinds. The loudest voice, it was familiar. Now that's what I call a preacher, it said. Oh, Chet Bushman. Sounded like he was just outside the door. Trent looked at his watch, 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning. The early service was just getting out. Chet's voice dropped considerably, and he said, You know, I hear he's looking for a church. Someone answered him, a thinner voice, the words failing to penetrate the door. Well, yes, of course, Chet said. I pray Pastor Adam has a speedy recovery, but we do need to look at all our options and think about what's best for the church. Trenton smacked his mouth slowly, feeling like the foul taste of morning breath had not been there a moment earlier, or at least not as bad. His father was in the hospital, having been injured while protecting and serving this community, and not only had the de facto leader of the elder board not visited him or even called, now he was actively laying groundwork to replace him. Trent stood quickly, grabbed his backpack, and opened the door. Bushman and Scott Galt started as Trenton came striding out, giving Bushman a welding torch glare and a taste of his shoulder as he shoved past without a word. The older man's solid frame didn't give, and Trent found himself staggering a bit down the hall. Cutting through the exiting worshippers, Trenton craned his neck, looking for Judith. She usually showed up just as the old folks' service ended and helped set up coffee and donuts for fellowship time. But he didn't see her coming in the door, nor in the fellowship hall. Walking out into the morning sun, Trent was attacked by a sudden, almost violent hunger. The smell from the white-tailed diner called to him, and he answered, sliding into his and Judith's booth and ordering up a breakfast skillet. As he ate, he finally began to process all the things he'd tied off in the dead of night, the thoughts he'd squelched as he'd tried to sleep. Zoe, doing Brian Greene's will, had sneaked into his hidden room before attacking him. Was that real? Everything was different today, upside down. It all looked a little more like Judith's take on things in Clinch Rock, maybe more than a little. And where was Judith? He'd tried calling again, but got her voicemail. Trenton had a sense that she would know what to do next, and he had so much to tell her. If he couldn't relay the information now, though, he may as well try to gather some more. Going back home was not an option anyway, but where to start? The library? No, it was closed on Sundays. A very obvious, albeit very bad, idea grabbed hold of Trent. He knew exactly where to go. Jesse Finn was alone in the police station when Trenton arrived. How you holding up, bud? He asked. Hanging in there, Trent answered, because that's what you answer when someone asks how you holding up. They shook hands, and Jesse pulled him in for a brief manly hug. Jesse had been a close friend to the Marsh family, especially in the wake of their tragic loss years earlier, always there to help, to listen, to try and take their mind off it all for a little while. They were so close, in fact, that Trent had begun calling him Uncle Jesse until the officer put the kibosh on that because of the whole Stamos thing, he explained. 
The rift that had been growing between the two cops was probably harder on Trent than on either of them. And now it was nice to see a friendly face, to be reminded that there were some people you could still trust even when everything was up for grabs. I haven't been up to see him, Jesse said. I really need to go. He'd love that, Trent said. If you go later today, maybe you'd bring me? Jesse smiled. You still can't drive? Shut up, Trent laughed. I can drive, I just don't have a license. Well, I can't allow that. Speaking of which, I'm supposed to make you sign in, I guess, Jesse said, nodding toward the clipboard. I'm just here for a second, left some stuff in Dad's office. We'll let protocol slide this time, but be quick about it. Thanks, Uncle Jesse. I told you not to... Trent was already through the swinging gate in the low wall that separated off the holding cell's evidence room and chief's office and pulling out his dad's spare key, with which he opened the office door. Once inside, he tried to casually swing it shut, just enough to hide him from anyone in the station proper, but not enough to raise suspicion. He slid into his dad's leather chair and wiggled the computer's mouse, bringing up the login prompt. Lilani1998 was the password, his mother's name, and the year they were married. It was Dad's password for everything. Once in, he ran a query for Zoe Green. Out of 10 million residents, it returned only one record, a 51-year-old woman in Sault Ste. Marie who had been arrested for meth at least a dozen times. Of course, if Brian Green wasn't her father, then Green really wasn't her name. In a flash, he remembered the fake ID in her wallet and how she'd displayed it side by side with the real deal, only the fake had been Zoe Green. What was the other name? It was Zoe something. Fromeyer? No. Frobisher. Frobisher. But how to spell it? On his third try, he hit pay dirt. All the particulars filled the screen along with a mugshot. The woman staring back at him from the monitor was unmistakably Zoe, but looked older by a few years, despite the picture being dated 18 months earlier. Date of birth, November 11, 1995. So she really was 22. He thought of their kiss and had a sudden urge to call Jason and brag, but no, that was ridiculous. Besides, Jason's phone was dead and locked away somewhere in that hall of mirrors and tacky knickknacks that Mrs. Dufresne called a bedroom. Anyway, back to the matter at hand. Zoe's current address was listed in Rochester Hills, hometown of both Tango and Cash. A short list of misdemeanors included minor in possession and petty check fraud. A resonant voice filled the bullpen outside the office, reminding Trent that he was on borrowed time. He quickly hit print record and minimized the window, just as the door to the office whipped open. What are you doing? Chief Barton demanded. I'm just checking my email. Trent said. I mean, where have you been? Stopped by your house three times this morning. You trying to give me a heart attack? Oh, sorry, I... Kid, I told your dad I'd keep an eye on you, and I meant it. You can't just disappear in the wee hours of the morning without telling me where you're going. I, I went to church, Trent said, shrugging. I was there for the early service. Technically true. It's Sunday morning. I, I thought you'd just assume. The annoyance faded a bit from the chief's face. Okay, sorry to yell at you, but things have changed. It's not safe for you to stay there by yourself anymore. Trent, who couldn't agree more, asked, What do you mean, changed? Barton pulled up a chair, his hand practically grazing the fresh printout of Zoe's mugshot in the process. He sat down and took off his hat. There was a murder last night. Trent's hand went to his mouth. It wasn't in town, Barton continued, out at the trailer park off 37. Trent felt dizzy. He thought of Judith not answering his calls. She always answered, even when she was mad. Who was it? Trent managed to ask. No one you'd know. He wasn't from around here, kind of a drifter. Name was Edward something. Edward Parker, I think. The room was spinning now. We're pretty sure it wasn't random, Barton said, oblivious to Trent's distress. Frankly, between you and me, most of Clinchrock's crime is out there. Lots of unsavory characters. Still, I have to insist you stay with us tonight. Candy's already made up the extra bunk in Danny's room, and don't worry, I had a talk with him. He'll behave. This brought Trent back to himself. Mourn Ed Piper later. Think about who would have wanted to kill him later. Form a plan now, or sleep five feet away from Dan Barton. His best bet, he decided, was to acquiesce in the short term and then get back to the hospital before nightfall. He could crash there. He had clothes and everything he might need right here in his backpack. 
Okay, Mr. Barton, but first, Jesse was going to go take me to visit my dad? Barton shook his head. I don't think so. Officer Finn's shift doesn't end until 6 tonight. We have dinner at 6.30, and I expect you there. And it's Chief Barton. Trent didn't have to dig deep to find the beginning of some tears. I, I really I want to see him, Chief Barton. I miss him, and I'm worried about him. Barton squirmed in his chair. I'll see if Officer Terrell is willing to drive you a little later, but in return, you've got to stay right here for the time being, so I can keep an eye on you. Deal? Yes, sir, Trent said. Yeah, he'd stay here. And first chance he got, he'd be pulling up Brian Green's record and printing that one out, too. An hour in the car with Tango wasn't appealing, especially after that awkward moment in the hospital parking lot, but he'd been there before, and if it got him to Dad's bedside, it was the lesser of two evils. As it turned out, Trent was not able to get back on his dad's computer. Barton put him to work, filing paperwork, emptying trash cans, and helping Sheila with any number of administrative duties. He threw himself into these tasks, trying to block out thoughts of Ed Piper's death, keeping his eyes peeled the whole time, searching for any kind of useful information amongst the police reports. Nothing jumped out, and a little after one, the chief sent Jesse to Zach's Delicatessen for sandwiches. Just as they finished lunch, Officer Terrell entered the station and told Trent, Get in the car. I'm taking you to Big Rapids. A chill hung between them as they drove, to the point where Trent half expected the cop to turn on the window defogger. For more than an hour, neither of them said anything. As he pulled up to the hospital entrance, Terrell simply spat, You're welcome, barely waiting for Trent to clear the vehicle before squealing away and heading back the way they'd come. Trent waited forever for the elevator and walked to the very end of a long hall where the door to his dad's room was closed. He knocked softly twice before entering. The room was rather dark, but he could see that his dad was asleep and that Judith was sitting in the chair next to the bed, holding his father's hand. She looked up at Trent and waved, vaguely. In the low light, it was hard to tell if it was a greeting or an invitation to get lost. Grabbing a folding chair from the corner, Trent sat down next to her, close, He'd made up his mind not to mention the murder of Ed Piper to his dad, but Judith lived in the same small trailer park. If she'd been here all day, she probably didn't know the potential danger lurking in her own backyard. Unzipping the front pocket of his backpack, Trent grabbed a pen and the first piece of paper he found. Only as he unfolded it did he remember what it was. Zoe Frobisher's mugshot. Judith snatched it from his hands and studied the page, reading the text, slack-jawed. Her eyes met his, and Trent was annoyed at the hint of an I-told-you-so smile she was working to squelch. But the smile died, instantly, as he grabbed the page back, flipped it over, and wrote, Ed Piper murdered last night, on the back. She stood and practically ran out into the hall. Trent followed, shutting the door behind them. Tell me everything, Judith hissed. That is everything. That's all I know. He was found murdered at his place. Barton says they don't have much to go on. Judith scoffed. Oh, Barton says. She shifted her weight nervously between the balls of her feet. So, what now? What now? Nothing now. This isn't a fun little adventure anymore. Someone's dead, Judith. I, I can't go home. They broke into our house while I was here yesterday, tore the place apart. Trent decided not to tell her about the tunnel. He'd already accidentally disclosed too much with the printout of Zoe's record. What about Zoe? She asked. How'd you find that? How do you think? I logged into my dad's computer. But why were you even looking? A hunch. He hated lying, but if Judith knew Zoe had broken into his bedroom and attacked him in the night, there would be no holding her back from exacting revenge. Judith tightened her ponytail. Well, if you don't want to do anything about it, why even tell me? Because you need to be careful, too. Ed lived right near you. And if they know we were looking into this stuff... You're right, Judith nodded. I need to take the fight to them. What? No! You don't even know who they are, Judith. Just run home in the morning, grab some clothes, and hang with us here until Dad's back on his feet. We can play Scrabble. You can teach me Morse code. It'll be fun, like old times. Hiding out is not my style, she said. I told your dad I'd get us some Jimmy John's for dinner. After that, I'm out. She stalked back into the room, Trent right on her heels. Dad, you're up, he said. Not up, but awake. His dad gestured at Trent's backpack. Oh, good. You remembered to pack. What do you mean, pack? The retreat. Oh, Dad, no, I, I can't go. Not with you like this. 
You're going. I even have a ride lined up for you. But for now, Judy Bug's buying sandwiches. I've had it with the mush they're feeding me here. And look what the chaplain gave me. He held up a sealed deck of cards. Who's up for some cribbage? The three of them played cards on a hand-drawn cribbage board until it was dark out. Then they flipped on the TV, settling in on an endless string of I Love Lucy reruns. Judith squeezed into the pleather armchair with Trent, comfortable and comforting, almost enough to make him forget the danger lurking back in Clinch Rock and her vow to throw herself right back into it. Sometime after ten, she began to snore, and a slowly growing patch of drool appeared on Trent's shirt. He smiled as his own eyes grew heavy. The sun was streaming in when Trent awoke to the sound of his dad sawing logs. The clock on the wall said 8.45. Judith was nowhere to be seen, but Trent's shirt was still damp where she'd been resting her head, meaning she couldn't have left too long ago. Ignoring the patient-use-only sign, Trenton entered the bathroom and splashed some cold water on his face, patting it dry with paper towels. He frowned at his reflection in the mirror. Right in the middle of his forehead, Judith's lipstick bore witness— She'd kissed him on her way out. For some reason, it seemed like a kiss goodbye. He said a quick prayer for her, for safety, for discernment, for sanity. Coming back out of the bathroom, he stopped short. Jason's mom stood at the foot of the bed, chomping gum like a cow chewing cud. Mrs. Dufresne, what are you doing here? He asked. Didn't your dad tell you? She said. I'm your ride to camp. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Good. Check.